Um, if you could have a grab a Bible and open it up to Luke chapter 18. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, beginning of verse 15 together. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to remind you of a man um, named William Borden. Um, I've referenced him before in brief, but uh, he was a guy who was born in 1887 in the Windy City of Chicago, and he was born to a really prominent wealthy family, so he was born immediately an heir to a great amount of wealth. And as he was 16 years old, he graduated from high school, so he did well. And uh, as his graduation gift, his parents sent him on a trip around the world, so pretty status quo, right? I mean, we all got that, right? Um, And so as he's on this trip around the world, he develops this huge heart for the people all around the world as he's traveling through Asia and the Middle East. Uh, as he's traveling through Europe. And so on this trip, he writes back to his family saying, God has called me uh, to be a missionary. And his parents were kind of bothered by that. And even one of his closest friends uh, came up to him when he returned home and said, man, you are throwing away your life. I mean, look at all that you have. Look at who you are. You're throwing it all away. And he kind of took that conversation before God. And in the process of that conversation, he opened up his Bible and wrote in the back of his Bible, Two words, those words were no reserves, no reserves. He went off to Yale and studied there and he actually impacted the campus for Christ in pretty big ways and mobilized a lot of people towards the nations. And after he was done at Yale, he got offered all these really prominent, high-paying jobs that were really tempting, but he turned them all down. And in that struggle, he wrote in the back of his Bible under the words, no reserved, he wrote, no retreats. No retreats. And then afterwards, he went on to Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. And when he finished his studies, um, God had given them this heart for the Kansu Muslims of China. And so he sailed off to China. But on the way there, he stopped in Egypt in order to learn Arabic so he could more effectively minister the gospel to the people there. And while he was in Egypt, he contracted uh, spiral meningitis. And within a month, he was dead at 26 years old. This was really big news, huge news. Actually, every news outlet in our country and even news outlets around the world picked it up. I mean, this is a really prominent family, you know? It'd be like, in a really positive way, if a Kardashian, Kardashian passed away. You know, like people were like, whoa, this is crazy. He's 26, he had so much potential, so much wealth, so much intelligence. And one of his uh, biographers wrote, a wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege to him rather than a sacrifice. So many in his day saw his death as a sad waste of a life. They saw so much potential, such a prominent, powerful family, and they thought, man, what a waste. And I wonder how many of us today would actually think the same thing. I mean, granted, we look at a 26-year-old tragically dying from a disease and we go, that's horrible, that is tragic, that is so sad. But we would also go, man, he was doing something that was wasteful for his life. If he had only been doing something else, this would never have happened. And what's interesting about Borden's life is right before he had died, this was discovered afterwards, but right before he had died, they found two more words in the back of his Bible, and underneath the words, no reserves, and underneath the words, no retreats, right before he died, he wrote in that Bible, no regrets, no regrets. Everyone else is going, what a waste. He's dying, and he's going, no regrets. I mean, this was his outlook on life, 
I mean, this guy was so generous. He gave away a million dollars of his own money to the Inland China Mission and other mission agencies around the world, which is still a lot of money, right? But today, that amount of money would actually be $28 million as a 20-year-old. I mean, so, so most of us, I think, we, we look at a man like this and we think maybe how is this possible for somebody like him to give away their life in that kind of a way? And if you're anything like me, you look at a William Borden and you think, what an anomaly, right? What a unique man. And what I think is really interesting is that when we read the Bible and we read passages like we're going to look at tonight, and there really passages like this are all over the pages of the Bible, we actually see the, the trademarks that sort of mark a man like William Borden's life really are to mark the life of every single believer of Christ. And so that's what I, I hope that we see in a passage like this today is that we don't so much see William Borden as a unique example, but hopefully more of a normal example in our own lives even. So let's read through this together. Luke chapter 18, I'm going to start in verse 15 and read on down. It says, Now they were bringing even infants to Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man or rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is not one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time, in the age to come, eternal life. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that as we come to your word that you would teach us, that you would cause the eyes of our heart to behold Jesus in all the glory and worth um, that we should um, see in him and attribute to him. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us uh, through your word and to make us into the people uh, that you are um, desiring to make here in this Gresham area. In Christ's name, amen. What I want us to see, guys, in this story, in these two short stories, is as I think we see here the posture of being a disciple, of following Jesus. And that posture, I'm going to use the words of William Borden, that posture is no reserves. And then secondly, we're going to look at this price of following Jesus. And this price um, is summed up in no retreats. And then we have this promise of Jesus, this promise of no regret. And yes, this is an alliteration. And yes, this probably won't happen again for like three years. So 
enjoy it while you have it. This just popped in, and there we go. So um, you can't unsee things sometimes, okay? So first, let's look at this posture of Jesus. We see in this account of this children coming to him. And so we see in verse 15 through 17, people were bringing children to Jesus. It says that they might that he might touch them and bless them. And the disciples are rebuking these people for doing that, which is likely the parents. See, when Jesus saw them doing this, he says in verse 16, if you look down there again, he says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So I think in order to get the weight of this, we need to understand how people in Jesus' day completely and utterly in a different way viewed children. See, children in Jesus' culture were not held in high regard at all. In fact, children were often despised. They were cast aside. They were kind of pushed to the background. And it was the elderly, right, that were held in high regard in Jesus' culture. But today, I mean, children are at the center, right? I mean, we like worship children, basically, you know. And if you're a leader, if you're a politician even, I mean, the pictures that you want taken of you are with you holding a baby or, you know, hugging a kid or kissing a kid or something like that, right? And it wasn't so in Jesus' day. This was not a good look. So the disciples are basically saying, hey, we want our teacher to be respected. We want him to have a reputable ministry and ministries with good reputations. Don't have children hanging all over the place. So they try to shoo them away. And Jesus says that no one is to be kept from having access to him. No one is. Every person is significant to Jesus, no matter what the culture of our world says. Every single person, even children. And this is teaching us a very important lesson further than that, though. It's, it's this, that those who come like children to Jesus, it, it's to those people that belongs the kingdom of God. What's the posture of a Christian? What is the posture that all of us and every Christian around the world is to have? We must come to Jesus like children. We are to have faith like a child. I think it's really important to realize that Jesus does not say, hey, this is ideal. He doesn't say, this is kind of probably a good way to go. Or this is like, if you could really pick, having a posture like a child and coming to, the, to him like a child is, is kind of the ideal way. He doesn't say that. Jarringly, he says in verse 17, what? If you do not receive the kingdom like a child, you will not be able to enter it. So what does he mean? Is he telling us to be childish, to enter the kingdom? Well, no, not at all. I mean, though Christians can be childish, right? He's, he's calling us to be childlike. And so if this isn't our posture, you cannot enter. You cannot receive Jesus as king, which is the fundamental way that you enter the kingdom. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot follow Jesus. You, you have to become like a child. We have this really small door outside of our bonus room that goes into this landing. It's really small. And the landing is basically where all the kids play. They have toys and different things out there. I hate going out into the landing. Well, I have nothing out there for me. But once in a while, I have to. And I have to pass through this tiny door in order to get out there. And I'll just be honest with you. I've never once in my life looked cool trying to go through that door. It's always a little bit like, hope no one's watching. Right? Because why? I am this large man trying to make myself really small to go through this door that really if you're a child, a small child, you can just run in and out like no big deal. But in some ways, I have to become postured like a child, especially in order to enter into the landing of our house, right? You, you cannot enter without becoming like a child. 
So what does it mean then to receive like a child? I mean, how do you make yourself small, right? Well, think about it. To be a child is to have what? Well, humility, right? It's to realize that you are not strong, right? Children have no problem initially, no problem initially in asking their parents for help. I mean, they for a time think their parents are the strongest, most powerful, the wisest people on the face of the planet. I mean, my kids ask me questions. I'm almost like, wow, I'm glad that you, I can't believe you even think I know that, right? That's amazing. Or my, it's been, I'm not going to lie, it's been amazing because for the first time in my life, there are people in this world who think I'm strong, right? They'll be like, wow, dad, you did that? And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty cool, right? I'm not like Jeremy Heath or something like that. I'm not someone who's actually strong. Like, I am not strong, but my kids, to my kids, I am strong, right? Because they're kids and they're comparing themselves to me, right? So don't ruin this for me, okay? Let's just keep this going as long as we can. Right, but children are like that, right? They willingly and humbly ask for help because they know their weaknesses, right? They know their, their inabilities. To be childlike is to be trusting in someone else. Children have nothing, and they realize that they have nothing from, unless they have it from someone else, whether it's guidance or provision. Right? See, see, we don't get to decide who Jesus' kingdom is for. He does. And he says that his kingdom is not for the strong. It's for those who are willing to admit that they are not strong. I think this is why the kingdom of Jesus is not often attractive in places like the Portland metro area, in places like the West Coast or the Pacific Northwest as a whole. Because just think about our heritage, right? Our roots up here, they run deep in individualism. I mean, people initially moved out here all all the people that are from your family, right? they moved out here because they were wanting to get away from having to depend upon other people, wanting to get away from having to submit to any other authority besides themselves. And so we even have a heritage out here where we love to think that we are strong, that we are unique, that we are the best, the brightest, the educated. Why would we need anyone else? It's hard for us to admit with childlike trust that we need Jesus. This is hard. And I wonder, though, if you resonate with this posture tonight. I mean, have recently in your life, have you found yourself almost even saying out loud, my faith feels childlike? Childlike. Or do you resist wanting to have to actually rely upon God? Or maybe you would say, I actually do resonate with this posture, but I'm actually, if I was being honest, I'm hoping to get to the place where I can feel less childlike. I, I I sense my weakness and my daily need to trust in God, and I don't like this. I kind of hope I can grow out of this. But Jesus' words are teaching us that this is good. This is the way. This is our posture. I also would be remiss if if I didn't point out the, the simple fact here in the first two verses that Jesus showed love for children. He loved children. His heart was wide. For children. And that's why it's so important. And I love the fact that here at GBC, within our church family, that we love children, that we celebrate children, that even in the first third of our gathering, we have the children in here, that, that it's so important that we do parent child dedications. It's the children's ministry and, the, and what's going on right now um, with people giving of their lives to sacrifice and volunteer, or people like Carrie and Bethany who give their lives away on our staff in order to, to help our kids grow in Christ is such an important job. 
I mean, from the unborn all the way up through the youth, children are at the heart of God. I mean, we think of what Jordan does and, and Wendy and Joel and Elise and Savannah and Nicole and all these people give their lives away in serving on Sunday nights or Monday nights. That's so important. Right? And, and in doing this, right, we reflect the heart of God. This is why it's important that we support families who are um, giving their lives to adopt kids or who are giving their lives away to foster children. Right? It's because this is reflecting the heart of God. God loves children. And so no matter who we are as individuals, what a great investment for us to invest in the next generation, to pour our lives out in serving our kids, whether that's here on Sundays or at youth ministry or in wraparound families for foster and adoption. And so here's the amazing thing, though, about that. Because as you give your life away to reflect God's heart for children, right, as you pour into them, as you teach them, as they learn from you, God is actually saying that you are going to learn from them. That's the beauty of this whole thing. How do you learn childlikeness? It's not by hanging out with the powerful, but with the kids. As they learn from you, you will learn from them. And this is the posture but secondly, right, we have this price here that's reflected in this no retreats mentality that we're called to. In verses 18 through 25, we see Jesus encounter this ruler here that we traditionally refer to as the rich young ruler by his description. And this man comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus the most important question you can ever ask. Verse 18, it's an important question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's a question. Imagine someone asked you that. That's great. A profound one. And Jesus has his classic response, almost like Yoda-like, right? I mean, it's like, what are we talking about all of a sudden? Because he goes, why do you call me good? Right? It's almost like he's avoiding the question, but he's not. He's pressing in because what does he say? No one is good except God alone. See, in Jesus' day, it was really rare to refer to anybody as good except for God. That's, that's really the, the sort of delegation of the word for people. You didn't just do that. And so the young man probably doesn't get it, but Jesus is essentially saying, yes, I am good. Yes, I am a teacher, but more than that. In fact, I am God. So Jesus is revealing his rightful authority over this man's life. I'm not just a teacher. I am your creator, Right? So Jesus replies to the young man then in verse 20 after kind of drawing that out with this list of what he's supposed to do and he gives these commands, right? You see it, do not commit adultery, murder, steal, bear false witness, honor your father and mother. These were a part of the 10 commands that were given to Moses to deliver to Israel, right? When he came, comes down from Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, right? And so Jesus is drawing out these commands. He doesn't point out the first four, which kind of deal with our relationship with God, profoundly and how, who we worship and who we, how we rest and things like that. And he also doesn't point out the last one, which is you shall not covet. And so the guy says, I've done all these things. He's clearly quite confident that he has. And so we should notice Jesus' response. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, no, you haven't. He doesn't say, you've broken all of them, actually, if you really think about the motivation of your heart and what you're doing, right? He doesn't, he doesn't like dissect it like that. He doesn't call him a liar. He seems to be okay with the man claiming to have kept these commands. But then look at how Jesus follows up in verse 22. What does he say? When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me, right? Be my disciple, 
So Jesus says to the man, you need to do one thing, sell it all, give it to the poor, and the man was crushed by this teaching. The text tells us in verse 23 that the man was very sad. Why? Well, the text tells you because he had great possessions, right? He was extremely rich, William Borden kind of rich. This was no small thing to say, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And maybe if you have nothing, you're like, that's not a big deal. But if you have a lot, that's painful. So Jesus doesn't mean here that the way to obtain salvation is by selling all that you have. But this is this call for this person, this young man, because Jesus knew this man's heart. He knew that before he his creator, right, God himself, before he could take the seat on this man's heart, the seat of the throne of this man's heart, another so-called little king, little God, need to be dethroned first. So in this man's case, it was the security, maybe the reputation, the approval that would come from having a lot of wealth and possessions. That feels good, right? But, but it had become this thing for him that he had to have it. This is, this is what was ruling his life. If he was, you know, captaining a ship, you know, these things had their hand on the wheel, whatever that wheel is, right? And Jesus is saying, I need you to let go. Right? Jesus knew that this man had a smaller God in his heart and that smaller God would have to be dethroned in order to follow Jesus because Jesus does not share his throne. Guys, this is the price of a Christian. This is the price. The young man wouldn't do it. He retreats. He sadly walks away. He rejects Jesus. I mean, what a scene, right? But look at Jesus' response. The man is sad, and Jesus sees him in verse 24, how he becomes sad, and he said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying the largest animal you could think of in the Middle East was a camel. He's like, think about that, the largest animal going through the smallest opening, it's easier for that to happen than for someone who's trying to hold on to all their wealth, right? To go through that little door in the landing, right? It's easier. His point is simple. A lot of people have tried to overanalyze this and many words have been, you know, a lot of ink has been spilled on this analogy alone, but he's basically just saying a big thing can't go through a small hole, right? You have to become like a child. I, I've wondered all week, guys, I wonder about me, I wonder about you. You know, what would actually be that functional God in your life? I mean, what is it that you think, I have to have this, and I have to be able to hold on to it, and if I can, my life will be okay. I'll be fine. I can keep going. Maybe you have it now. Or maybe it's it, the God is still there, but you don't have it in all reality. So the God is really manifested in the hope of having that thing. And this could be many, many things. I, I don't have kids, but I, that's what I'm holding out hope for. I don't have a spouse. That's what I'm holding out hope for. 
I don't have this thing in my life realized in the public square. That's what I'm holding out hope for. If we're struggling to figure out what this is, I think one way you could put the finger on it is to ask yourself, what is it that you fear losing the most in your life? That if you lost it, you would actually begin to think life is not worth living or I'm having a hard time seeing it. I mean, if you're unsure what that even is, just even think about tonight. Like, do, like I urge you to do this. What is it that consumes your, your thinking? What is your like default when your mind is just wanting to rest, right? And, but you just default there. You don't even tell yourself to think about it. You just find yourself thinking about it all the time. What, what captures your attention? What consumes you? What makes you anxious? I've said it before this way. I, I often think of it as look for where your knuckles are white. The thing that I'm just gripping on and those knuckles are turning white, it's showing how tight of a grasp I have on something. I'm protecting it. I'm refusing to let go. Whatever it is, Jesus is looking at our hearts and he is saying, that's my spot. I don't share my throne. That, that so-called God is not God. And you protecting that thing on your throne is not leading you to life. Only my kingdom can. So where are your knuckles white? I think in some ways you can know what this is by your ability just to put it down. Because right? if something isn't really God, even if it's painful, I can set it down. And then if God gives me that good thing again, I can hold it loosely and praise God for it, but if I have to set it down again, I can keep setting it down, right? I have a loose grip. I'm, I'm curious, what has following Jesus cost you in your life? I mean, do we as a church even expect following Jesus to cost us? Has Jesus said, give that up and follow me, and we've actually thought, I can't? Not that. We think it's impossible. And that's what the disciples, that's where their minds go to in verse 26. Who then can be saved? Right? If this wealthy man can't be saved, which the wealthy in Jesus' day were the people you would think, well, they certainly are. Because having wealth was a sign that you probably were in the kingdom. That God's favor was upon you. So for Jesus to say something so starting like, it's impossible for that kind of person to enter the kingdom would be so startling. So there's this, how are, you, how are you to do this? How can someone let these things go and actually enter the kingdom with the posture of a child? How can I loosen my grip? Well, that's what we end up with this amazing promise, right? And the promise is that if you actually live into this, you will be able to say, I have no regrets. Because look at the hope in this promise Jesus offers. Look at verse 27. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So salvation is possible for idolaters like you and me. That's the good news. God does what seems impossible so that what was actually impossible for us can become possible. And in response, verse 28, Peter says to Jesus, hey, we've left our homes and we've followed you. He's saying, we've done that. We've counted the cost and we have followed you, right? We aren't like this rich young ruler. 
And here in verses 29 through 30, Jesus doesn't correct Peter. He doesn't say, you've got it wrong. But look at what he does say. He offers this second promise. It's this promise of no regrets. What does he say? And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time, which is today, and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying that it's very, very costly to be a part of his kingdom. Life in the kingdom of God, it'll actually cost you everything. But God promises that in this life, he will give more. He will give more than it costs you. And this is a really challenging promise, more than maybe we realize, because let's be honest, leaving behind wealth and possessions is one thing, but here he's talking about leaving behind family. Now that's quite another, isn't it? But Jesus gives us this important assurance that those who have to leave behind family to follow Christ will find a new family, the people of Jesus. Jesus will provide, and let's not minimize this. This is people's real life stories in this world. There are people, maybe some of you in this room, who you had to count the cost and you said, I'm going to follow Jesus, and your family said, you are dead to me. I know people where that's happened, where your family has said you are no longer welcome here, where they might even ridicule you for doing that. Maybe it's not family, maybe it's friends and you've decided to follow Jesus and your friends have completely turned their back on you. There's a cost in following Jesus and there might even be a cost in what he's telling you to lay down. I mean, uh, my my brother and sister-in-law, Scott and Sarah Carey, I mean, they have counted the cost and they have left family to go and spread the gospel to people in Papua New Guinea. Jesus asked them to do that and they've pressed into that. Why? Because there's this great promise that Jesus will provide. He will be more than sufficient. He will provide in this life family, spiritual family that is closer than even your biological family. For those who have had to leave behind family, this is amazing. It's an amazing promise. I don't know if you're familiar with that amazing line in the Psalms. It's Psalm 68, verse 6. It's simple. But it says, God sets the lonely in families. And for people who've had to leave behind others for the sake of following Jesus, they know that to be true. I think in some smaller ways I reflected this week, I've experienced that in some ways where, um, you know, for many years of my life, I, uh, you know, was not following Christ and had a, basically a whole new group of friends that were just horrible for me. They, they were toxic for me. And I came to this point in my life where I was standing on this fence. And um, basically, I knew if I am going to follow Christ, I have to leave behind these friends. Because they are, they are they're going to pull me away from this. And I'll never forget making that decision and having all these people These new friends literally become family for me during that season of my life. I remember a guy named Nate Adam who basically knew if I went home for Thanksgiving, that wouldn't be good for me. So he's like, you're going to have Thanksgiving at my house. So here I'm gathered around a Thanksgiving table with all these people who are just like, we're so glad you're here. I think of my friend Darren, who's now in Turkey. He's, He's left his family in the comforts of his life to go and spread the gospel in Turkey, which is cool. We prayed for Turkey tonight, right? 
And I think of him and how he just welcomed me into his home and his family became my family. And he was like, I don't want you going back home to Montana for Christmas by yourself. So I'm going to give up my Christmas. I'm going to go with you. This is a huge comfort for people who have to leave others behind. That God will give you more in terms of family. But it's a huge challenge actually given to us as Christians, you guys. Because listen to Sam Alberry, great thinker, theologian, author. I recommend his books to you highly. Sam Albury is writing about this specific verse in Psalm 68. And he says, it is easy to read a verse like that and think, ah, oh, it's so nice that God does that. That's so nice that God does that. But the fact is, it's actually deeply challenging because we're the families of Psalm 68, which God is placing the lonely in. We're the mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers and sons and daughters that Jesus is promising. So this promise here from Jesus is quite unusual because there's a sense in which it depends upon us as God's people to fulfill it. There is a cost that people have to count in leaving, but there is a price that we as a church have to take in consideration as we welcome others in. And so we can think of so many people that have done this. We think of, you know, the Mormons who have left behind family and friends and possessions and moved their lives to Slovenia in order to spread the gospel there. We think of the Babers who have left behind their friends and family for a long season of their life and they went to Laos and Thailand to spread the gospel there. We think of Virgil and Kelsey Brown who even uprooted their lives here. And yes, they're down the road, but they had to completely uproot their lives and now invest in a whole new group of people, right? We think of people who have given up their friends and lifestyles that have been damaging to them because Jesus said, I want you to give me that. We can think of those who gave up their sexual lifestyle, their addictions, and they left toxic group friends, and in turn, Jesus has given them family, the church, GBC, and others. This is why we even use the intentional language of family within our walls, because that is who we are. But in order for this to be realized, it comes through us opening up our hearts, opening up our homes, and not white-knuckling whatever preferred relational dreams we have in this world, because there's something better. We, we must, you guys, if we are going to see people in our city, especially come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, we have to be ready to welcome them in. Who's going to be their family if they had to leave behind others? Who's going to be their support? Who's going to care for them? But see, the problem of passages like this, I think, is that they feel really hard, don't they? Because number one, they are, right? Let's be honest. But number two, because we often read them and we just focus on the thing that we're supposed to let go of. That's all we see. I have this one thing, and I'm like, you can't have that. I have to give that up? And, and if I focus there, this feels impossible, doesn't it? It feels impossible. But here, you must see that Jesus is giving you something else, something more. You're not empty-handed. You might come to him empty-handed, but you don't leave empty-handed. And this is like the trick, right? I grew up with a dog, and he would want to play fetch, and every time he'd bring the ball back to me, I thought he wanted to play fetch, but he would not drop the ball. And so I learned the trick, right? You grab another ball, and you go, here you go, and then they drop the ball, right? 
Or pro tip, right, if you're ever serving in kids' ministry or you're a parent at home, right, and you have those really young kids and they're white-knuckling something that maybe is just dangerous or breakable or they shouldn't have it, and you're like, hey, buddy, how about you put that down? Can you give that to me? And they're just like, nope, nope, right? Here's the pro tip. You don't just say put it down because all they're thinking about is I don't want to put this down. I want this thing. But if I go, here's an ice cream cone, what are they going to do? Those, that grip is going to loosen, isn't it? Because I want this, right? If I say to you, drop the thing and walk away empty-handed, you misunderstand what Jesus is saying. This is how Jim Elliott, right, who grew up in Portland, went to Wheaton, literally gave his life trying to spread the gospel in Ecuador, literally died by the hands of the people who he was trying to see come to the knowledge, saving knowledge of Jesus. This is how people like him could say he is no fool, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He gets it. Jesus is not sending you away empty-handed, right? That's not the promise. See, but more so, you guys, Jesus is not just sending you away with a family. He's sending you away with himself. And this is what's so wonderful about the gospel is the gospel is not about what you do, which is what this man misunderstood. The gospel, the good news, is about what God has done. But your hands and your heart have to be empty just like a child to receive it. And this is why our God is amazing, right? Because he's calling you and me to this tonight, right? But Jesus never asks us to do something that he hasn't already done himself, has he not? Because what is true about God, what is true about Jesus, we are told that he, the true God who owns like everything, Right, full of eternal wealth that would make the wealth of you know, William Borden look like a child's piggy bank. Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we who are poor, and we all are, you just got to know you are, that we might become eternally rich Right? This is, this is what he did, right? God, who was eternally rich, became poor. He became spiritually bankrupt on the cross. He drained his account of wealth, the wealth of his righteousness, to pay off your sin debt. And it wasn't cheap, right? Tim Keller says so well, Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He gave it all. It's so that we who know we are like children, I bring nothing to him except my sin. We come trusting so that we, with childlike faith, might become eternally rich. See, you are given a brand new inheritance, and if you know how rich you really are, then all the other things that look like wealth, you go, that's really cheap now. I can let go of that. There's something more. This is our posture, guys. This is the price, but you're not sent away empty-handed because there's this promise. And guys, I'll say this. Our living into this is one of the greatest needs that this world needs right now. The church, we, we need to be clear on the gospel, right? We need to proclaim the gospel clearly, consistently, regularly, and not shrink away from doing that. But we are also called to live in light of it. We are to be a family where this is lived out in action. 
where it is seen and experienced, where those who walk narrow roads have fellow travelers for the journey, who we can learn from and lean on and in sharing, in going out and actually sharing in evangelism, in sharing this gospel. If it's true sharing, guys, you will be calling people to turn away from their old lives towards a new life in Jesus. They will be being called to give things up, everything to follow him. And how are we going to hold out this new life in Jesus as the best thing? Oh, it's by showing that it's true for us. I mean, could you imagine if there was, you were sick and you knew your friend who was sick and you were like, hey, I know that there's this pill that if you take it every day, it'll heal you and make you whole. Right? And they're like, wow, that's amazing. Like, what are the side effects? And you're like, I have no idea. I've never taken it. Right? That just wouldn't compute. It wouldn't make sense. This is what we're doing, right? What we're saying, this is, this is the way of Christ. This is the way this is good. This is the way that we go. And as someone that says, what will it cost me to go? It'll cost you everything, but look how the, I mean, look, it's amazing. This is the way. This is the way. We are not fools who give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. Because we've seen that what we've put down and left behind pales in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. William Borden is is not supposed to be an anomaly. He might have way more money than you and me. But what marked his life marks everybody in the kingdom. He's the norm. This is the normal posture. No reserves, right? The normal price, no retreats. It's the promise, right? No regrets. Let's all stand together and I'm going to pray as we move into our time of response. God, we thank you for your word. You are this steady rock in our lives as the waves and wind crash around us. As someone once said, it is not the rock that flows but the sea. You are a steady rock beneath our feet. God, you are good, and we are just amazed that, yeah, that you would call us into things that you've done infinitely more than us. Help us to see tonight the cost of of Christ is, is far surpassing in greatness to any cost that we would count and give up. Or would you speak clearly into our hearts that we would know what it is that we need to loosen our grip on, or God, would you create in us a humility like children? Would you help us to see what we gain through the gospel? And Lord, I do pray right now that we would continue to grow as a family here. We would open wide our hearts to those who are lonely. Help us to respond now to your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.